media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Well, this morning, if you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, we're going to continue on and I'm going to start with uh, a little bit of a um, philosophical question. It's really oriented in spiritual thought, but it's uh, tends to be a little bit more philosophical, and that is, why do you think it is that in the nature of man that we have this tendency to desire to know when, kind of the where the line is drawn where we should not go any farther? I think I've shared with you before that in my years of youth ministry, the number one question that I got asked, and, and really when I was youth, that was probably the number one question I had in my heart, was this, how far can we go? These are good, you know, these teenagers that love Jesus with all their heart, and yet they go, you know, how far is too far? And you kind of know where I'm going with that. In other words, they wanted to know where the line, and they loved Jesus enough that they didn't want to be disobedient to Jesus, and yet they wanted to kind of get their toes all the way up to the line. Well, we might say, well, you know, teenagers, you know, not adults, human beings. We're, we're kind of like that. We want to kind of know where the line is. Well, we kind of see that a little bit this morning in that we come across a passage that is often be referred to as the unpardonable sin, where Jesus makes uh, mention of that and the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin. And that has forever kind of caused people to think, what is the unpardonable sin? And I've been asked in these 37 years of ministry many times, well, what if I've committed the unpardonable sin? And I, I try to assure them from the very beginning, hey, just the fact that you're asking that, you probably haven't, okay? And so we're going to go through that today. And, you know, is that something that you can even do today? But what is it in our nature that we want to make sure we may not want to live for Christ. We just want to make sure we don't cross that line where it could be eternally, you know, damning to us. And so what is it once we don't want to this, but do we really have a passion for this, to live vibrantly and passionately for Jesus Christ? Uh, perhaps this morning as we look through this passage, passage, maybe we can find out a little bit more about our hearts and, and our desires and, and really say, God, will you just take our whole heart? Will you shape it for you? It's in Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and following that we begin to, to read this morning. And as we travel along, we, we begin to see Christ. He's now, uh, as we saw last week, picked 12 disciples and we would really be appropriately calling them apostles, as he did, because not only is he calling them to follow him like a disciple, but he is sending them out. And that's what an apostle, apostle is to proclaim. And so he's called these 12 men, none of them which would really make our cut list if we were just trying to hire 12 wonderful men that were going to turn the world upside down. But as we saw in the scripture last week, they did through the power of the Holy Spirit. That through God's power, these men, uh, minus Judas, turned the world upside down. And so we see that the, this is a, a, a movement in the ministry from just meeting together and people coming to see Christ to a going out. And this transition is happening right there. He's popular. Jesus is popular. He uh, has his team now. He uh, is very clear on his mission that he has come to to for the sinners, for those who realize that they are sick, that he is a doctor and that he can help them. So all these things are happening, and he's about to this go-and-tell ministry. And we come to verse 20 and 21. 
Then he went home, that is, Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not uh, even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Okay, the Pharisees, we've kind of seen the religious leaders team up, and now they are in cahoots with even people that they normally would not even think about being gathered with, and yet they're against this ministry of Christ. And you think, you know, that's going to be the the most formidable force against Christ. And yet now... We see that even his own family, we're, we're told in other parts of the Bible in John 5, uh, 7, 5, that even his brothers did not believe that he was the Christ. Now, they come later after the resurrection, they, they come to know Christ. But at this point, they really think that he is kind of insane, that he's crazy, that somehow he's got this figure of himself that is not right and just. It's a time when they kind of come together for family intervention. Some uh, scholars speculate that they, uh, when it says that, that he could not even eat, that they were concerned about the health and the wealth and the welfare of Jesus. And, and that might be true, but I really think it's the latter, uh, or the, the second part there, that they just thought that Jesus had lost it and that he truly was kind of deranged in his thinking. And so they come to be this corrective force to Jesus. In fact, it says that they went out to seize him. That word that's used there means to take hold of. It would be a word that we would say to arrest. So they've come, and they're not just going to have kind of a sit down in a circle and an intervention time. And how do you feel, Jesus? And here's how I feel. This isn't what's going on. They want to seize him. There's a, a kind of a physical aspect in the wording here that they want to take hold of Jesus and take him off the streets. So here we have Jesus' family coming to seize him because they thought that he's lost it. And the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious rulers, they, they're kind of in more opposition than ever before. And by this time, more and more of those scribes and Pharisees are coming from Jerusalem, which is about 90 miles away. Back in those days, that would have been quite a, a lengthy journey. You just didn't kind of get in your car and drive 90 miles. You, you really had to purpose to be there. And what we see more and more is that they're coming from Jerusalem to get this attack against the ministry of Christ. In fact, look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons that he cast out the demons. They cannot deny that Jesus is doing miracles. They can't deny that lame were now walking. People who were blind, even born blind, now could see. People who had leprosy now were healed. Jesus is doing all these physical manifestations of healing, and they said, this is supernatural. They couldn't duplicate it. And so they can't just say, okay, like the family, uh, we think Jesus is a little bit off of it. We think that he's crazy, that he somehow doesn't have all his mind together. They can't just do that because there's something on the table there of changed lives. And so they have to bring that in and change lives. There's kind of two forces out there that we would consider as human beings as forces. One is God. The other is Satan. They cannot contribute anything that Jesus is doing as of God because that would give verification to his ministry. So that option is off the table. So what do they do? The only option left. Somehow we have to bring the supernatural into this. 
Because we see supernatural things happening. Lives are being changed supernaturally. And there's only two sources that can really do that, that we know of, God and Satan. We can't say God, so we're going to say that Satan is the one behind this. And that's pretty much their story. We really shouldn't be surprised by this. It's one of those things that, you know, as we go from a a come and see kind of mentality in our life to a go and tell mentality, do not be surprised, Christian, if there's supernatural forces that come up, if you find opposition. You know, it's one of those things that you can have any uh, kind of value, any kind of um, belief in your life as long as you keep it to yourself. But the minute you go public with that, especially if it's about Christ, isn't it amazing that all of a sudden there, there's a lot of people that would we can kind of classify would oppose that? I mean, even at your workplace. What you have in your workplace, if you kind of keep your faith to yourself, if it's something you practice privately, your employer, as far as I would know, would not have any opposition to that. But you go into the workplace and you start proclaiming Christ... Don't be surprised if from time to time somebody, unless they were likely minded and they promoted that in their workplace, if you find opposition. And this is what's happening here, is that the more that Jesus goes from the come and see to the go and tell ministry, that opposition is now kind of in a fever level. And especially the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. And so Jesus' ministry, as he's kind of going out there, he basically come and say, this guy is not of God. He is actually from Satan. Again, why would they go there? Because they have to do something with the supernatural healings that are taking place. They have to somehow attribute to, to something beyond the own you know, man's physical nature. And so they go into that and they said, he is from Satan. If Jesus was simply teaching and teaching a new way, they could even go with what the family said. Oh, he's teaching this, but he's a little crazy. He's, he's, you know, we need to pray for him. He doesn't have all of his mind. It's this element of healing that Jesus does in this ministry that begins to force them into a time of really picking sides in this big spiritual battle. But notice how Jesus responds to their accusations. He actually uses two parables, two illustrations here to dispel their charges. And he does so brilliantly. Christ always the brilliant response to the charges of the Pharisees. Look at verse 23 through 26. And he called them to him and said to them in parable. Now, now who's the them? The crowd that is there, but also maybe these Pharisees and the scribes. He doesn't run away from them. He doesn't say, okay, I'm not going to answer this. This is not a political move from Christ. You know, politics today, you just, you don't discuss it. You kind of, you know, if they ask you this question, you answer this question. Why? So you can't be held accountable. Jesus does just the opposite of modern day politics, guys. Instead of saying, well, you know, what about this? No, they make this accusation and Jesus comes back directly in response to the accusation. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, 
that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. He uses something there that is not only spiritual in nature, but it's very logical in nature. He goes, you know, if we were to go out there in war, and all of a sudden we start dropping bombs on our own soldiers, how long is that war going to last before we have to raise that white flag of defeat and surrender because we've just imploded? And he uses this very logical um, saying that, okay, if these were truly miracles of Satan, and he truly was of Satan, then how can he cast out demons? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but in these first three chapters of Mark, Mark very much has pronounced that a lot of these miracles that he's done has not only had a physical manifestation that blind could see, that lame could walk, but many times there were times that he would cast out demons. And again, I know that in modern day, that starts to get quite mystical for a lot of people. Um, I, I get asked all, I mean, quite often, you know, are there still demons today? I, I guarantee you that there are. <laughs> I promise you that there are, that there's still a warfare coming against mankind even this day. Do we see a casting out of demons today like we did back in biblical times? I don't know that we see that. Is it possible? I, I think under the right circumstances, yes. I, I don't see an end to that in the New Testament where it says, okay, no longer will this happen. So I'm assuming that it can still happen. We don't put a lot of emphasis there, but Mark did. And why did Mark put a lot of emphasis? Because it was pronounced part of Jesus' ministry. Do you think that one month ago, three months ago, six months ago, Jesus knew that this moment in time was going to come? Yeah. He has awareness. He's working his ministry. He's very directed. His eyes are focused on the missional calls that God the Father has called him to. And so as he casts out these demons, eventually I believe that Jesus knows that this is going to come to a head. And here it has. The very people coming all the way, 90 miles away from Jerusalem, you're of the devil. These things are of Satan. So Jesus comes back very logically. How can Satan cast out Satan? And then he takes his logic a step further. Look at verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus takes this opening and in the second illustration, the second parable, he says, okay, if you're going to go in, let's say, and take something from a person's house and he's very strong and he's mighty, then in order to be able to carry that out, you have to bind the strong man. If not, the strong man is going to come against you. Now, what, why is he using this illustration? I believe for two reasons. Number one, to stay with the logic that he's already established, that if I'm really Satan, if, I, if my ministry is Satan, then, you know, I can't, def- I'm, I'm going to be defeated if I'm just, you know, calling out demons. But there's a second thing that he's doing that's a little bit more subtle, but it's right there, guys. He is proclaiming his authority over Satan. He said, man, Satan, he's the, the strong man. But in order to go in there and do these things, I have to bind the strong man, and I can do that. This is who I am. So he makes this, he's saying a lot, uh, not just in a logical sense, but he's making theological uh, assertions about himself. 
I am the Son of God. I have power over the demons and of Satan himself. How did the Pharisees and the scribes respond to this? That right there, complete silence. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I believe that there's times, you know, what we saw in the scripture last week is that when Jesus was in town and the people were there, it was chaos. All these people trying to touch him to the point where he had to plan an escape. You know, get the boat ready just in case this throng of people come upon and they begin to crush me. We saw that in the scriptures last week. But I think that there was times as we read the scripture that you could have heard a pin drop. And perhaps this is one of those times. I don't know how many, I I hate to even call them holy huddles that the Pharisees had, but a lot of times as Jesus would respond to something that they've made an accusation or an assertment against Christ, they would get into a, I hate to even call it a holy huddle, but that's what they would have kind of thought it was. Hey, we we have to have an answer for this. And, And we don't have any indication here that they got into a huddle, but there was no response. Jesus masterfully not only entered a, a spiritual element in the reasoning, but a logical one. You say I'm of Satan? How, how can a house stand if it's divided against itself? If I'm casting out demons, how does that work? If I'm truly of Satan and they have no response. These two verses, along with the counterpart in in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 32, pronounce the seriousness of what the the scribes have done. And uh, uh, we begin to see Christ really pronouncing that. Look at verse 28 and 29. They are silent, the Pharisees and the scribes are silent, but Christ is not. Look at the seriousness, seriousness of the charges that he brings against these religious leaders. 28 and 29. Truly. Now, let's stop right there. Anybody have the King James this morning? Does it say verily, verily? Yeah. When I grew up, I was reading the King James, and I loved that verily, verily. And I didn't know what verily was until I had to ask the question, you know, what does verily mean? And I forget exactly who told me, but it says that he's saying truly, truly would be a a modern-day interpretation of it. But it's kind of like, have you ever said to somebody, now I tell you the truth, boom, boom, boom. Have you ever said that? Anybody? What are we emphasizing there? Are we assuming that everything else we've said without that as precedence it was false? No. We hope that we're truthful people, but when we say something like, well, now I tell you the truth, what we mean is, verily, verily, truly, truly, this one I really mean. I meant everything else I said was true also. It wasn't I was lying to you before, but this time I want you to, I want to emphasize how truthful, how passionate I am that this is the truth. That's how we can take these words, verily, verily, truly, 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 in the ESV, when Jesus says this. We don't say, okay, everything else that he said wasn't really true, and this is the part that he said is true. No, he's making an emphasis here. He's trying to them to, uh, to get them to understand the depth of the accusation that they've just made. So first word, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. That verse right there has caused theologians, pastors, and followers of the faith to wonder, what is this sin? Pastor Bobby, have you ever been asked by somebody, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Yes. And there's all kinds of myths. There's all kinds of different things out there. Uh, there is a contention, and I don't think it has any biblical standing whatsoever, but there is that kind of uh, myth out there that suicide, taking your own life, is the unpardonable sin because you don't have the opportunity to ask forgiveness. I can pretty much tell you 100% that that's not true because that any sin then... What do we have right before we take our last breath? Would we have to, to pray again this prayer of forgiveness? No. It doesn't follow the, the logic. And yet, there's an old wives' tale out there that just says, okay, if, if, if a Christian dies in this manner, that's the unpardonable sin. I can tell you, this pastor does not believe that whatsoever. So, so what is it? When people have asked this in the past, I believe one of two things has happened. One, I think that it is truly the torment of Satan that wants to take their past and somehow get them to believe that what they have done is so bad and so wrong that they could never be forgiven. I think that he kind of concludes differently, Jesus that is, in verse 28. Okay, he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Is that a universal kind of forgiveness of sins? No, it's not universalism. He's not saying, okay, if I go die on this cross, everybody who's ever lived is going to go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. The opportunity for any sin, as we come and we put our trust and faith in the beauty of the gospel, can be forgiven. But you know, sometimes Satan doesn't want you to know that. Over these years of ministry, there's been uh, several ladies that have come to me and and shared with me that at an earlier time in their life that uh, that they went through an abortion. And I can tell you, folks, as much as they believed in the beauty of the gospel, the torment of Satan in their lives was astronomical. And all of a sudden there was a believable lie. It was a lie, but it was a believable lie because all of a sudden Satan would just say, you know, that was murder, that was this. And you can only imagine, you can only imagine the torment that they were under. And yet these ladies loved Jesus. They believed in the beauty of the gospel. And I would assure them, I would take them to scriptures like this. I would take them to First John. I would take them over to all these places. And, and you could see the relief kind of come back to their... And they knew that. I didn't tell them anything they didn't know. And yet, Satan is a liar, guys. He's a liar. But it doesn't have to be an abortion. There can be something in your life. Maybe there's time in your life that you are so drastically... Maybe you're even a Christian. Many of, this may, of us may have come to Christ when we were 12 or 13 or 11 or 15... And then went through the 20s and we kind of just lived life so much for ourselves that there was almost a complete rejection of the gospel and the way the gospel in our lives. I know many people like that. That if you would have looked at their lives from the outside, that they have no evidence whatsoever that they're living for Jesus Christ. And Satan loves to torment them. Hey, what about those 20s? 
And that's where we can go back. Yeah, let, let me go back to, in my 20s, let me go back to when I was 12. And I put my faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. And I was wayward, but Christ has never been wayward. I was unfaithful, but he has never been unfaithful. And in the midst of my unfaithfulness, he was the faithful one who has forgiven me of all my sins. Oh, that's just a spiritual cop-out. No, guys, that's the gospel. That's the gospel, okay? Don't argue with me. Argue with Christ because he's the one who's going to stand for that. He's the one that says maybe there were chapters in our life that really didn't reflect a holiness, didn't reflect a love and, and a, a tenderness toward the gospel. And that's why I'm so glad that in those days I wasn't holding on to Christ, but that Christ was holding on to me. What a hope for us as believers. So no matter what the, the past sin, I think in verse 28, he says all sins will be forgiven the children of man. There's not a sin that we could ever have in our lives that is unforgivable when we come and confess before our Lord. Say, Lord, Lord will you wash this from my life? So what is the unpardonable sin? What, what is he talking here? What is he setting off? Truly I say to you. Because what the, the Pharisees and the scribes were doing right here in this one sin that is being mentioned, look at verse 29 again, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. This has become known as the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. Again, a lot of myths out there, a lot of people afraid that maybe they've done this, but what is it? First of all, the unforgivable sin, according to the text of verse 29 and verse 30, is when the scribes attributed the work of Christ to the work of Satan. And there would be many scholars, many theologians, many like myself, I, I would be in this camp, just if you want to know where your pastor stands, I don't think that we can do that particular, that precise sin today. Because I do think that it was a sin that they were in the presence of Christ and they saw Christ doing godly things And they had enough evidence to believe that he truly was the Messiah. And yet they rejected that. And then they went as far as attributing his works to Satan. Can we duplicate that? There'd be many that say, since Christ is not here, he's certainly alive, but he's not here during ministry day, that uh, that that can't happen. And we'll look at an application of that in just a little bit. But, But look again at verse 29 and 30. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. It's very obvious that Jesus is working in the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that he's working in the power of God. And yet the scribes accuse Jesus of working in the power of Satan. The word blasphemy means to speak irreverently about God or sacred things. If there's really a practical lesson, if you want to say an application for you and I today, it would be under this blaspheme. (laughs) Because I do believe that's a sin that we commit quite often. What does that include? Anytime that we would take God's name in vain, even when we don't say the bad word, but we substitute kind of a current version of that, just, you know, the, the church version of that. And yet we kind of include that in there. When we speak badly of godly things. 
sometimes out of our pure jealousy. Guys, we, we can speak badly about something that God is doing in somebody else's life. I, I believe that happens when we joke around about godly things. I mean, maybe we didn't start the joke. Maybe we, you know, didn't tell the joke again. But we remained in the company of somebody who was telling a, a joke and it dealt with godly things, and maybe we even snickered a little bit. I'm not trying to be a legalist here. I think God takes that really, really seriously. You start joking around about my wife or my kids, I take it pretty seriously. And there's a part of me, that very human part, that's probably not going to react quite uh, wholly. Now, God never acts unholy. But don't for a second think, guys, that he does not take the things of himself very, very seriously. And when we go, well, that really, you know, that that was kind of a gray line. No, I think that it's either white, you know, it's pure, it's it's, it's uplifting, it's, 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 it's worshiping God. Or when we start to get into these things, it's, well, that really wasn't directed toward God. Well, you said it. I think we have to be very, very careful here. And again, I don't want to be the word police. I don't want to be there a legalist. I just think that when we think about the holiness of God, that should call a reverence in our life that we just should be very reverent about those things. Because God cares much for his name. Go do a study sometime on, on the, how God feels about his name. <laughs> and you will find that he, he thinks much of his name. So, can our blasphemy of God, can we commit blasphemy? We can. It can be forgiven. Go back to verse 28. He even says these blasphemies can be forgiven. What was this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I think, to me, it was, in, in my understanding, what was happening right there. That the Pharisees and scribes had enough evidence before them. They had the prophecy that said a Messiah was coming. Then they saw that prophecy fulfilled, even though they rejected it, they have the evidence right before them. And so there's this rejection of the evidence of what they should have been convinced of. And then on top of that, they go over here and they attribute that to Satan. I believe that that's specifically what they were talking about. Christ was talking about this unpardonable sin. So can you and I commit that? My estimation would be no in the specific sense, but now let me give an application. Can you and I commit the unforgivable sin? My estimation, most likely not, not in the original sense of Mark chapter 3, but very much so if we have a a continual rejection of the gospel and a hardness of heart. I think that's the application of us, that our unbelief would be, turned into this permanent unbelief, we just harden our heart. Because ultimately, the the sin that cannot be forgiven is the sin of unbelief. If we don't place our faith and our trust and belief in the beauty of the gospel, in the finished work of Christ, then folks, there's not a place in heaven for us. This is the only way to be at peace with a holy God. We could even take that as far as uh, when we would allow that... Jesus isn't the only way. And we allowed a, a broad application. Well, you know, as long as your attitude or your thoughts were right, maybe, maybe you can, 
No, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father except for me. It's not my statement. It may not be your statement that you made. It's Jesus' statement about himself. And so an unbelief against that in a continual thing, the Bible says, hardens the heart. You work outside, you get calluses on your finger. It begins to, you rub it, you rub it, you rub it to the point where it becomes a callus. And that callus becomes insensitive. Now, underneath it may be, have a sensitivity, but at least on the surface, that callus is insensitive. Why? Because it's just been rubbed and rubbed and rubbed. And the Bible says that can actually happen to our hearts. That as we would live in this world, that we can grow a hardness in the rejection of the things of God. And, and here's, the, here's the thing for you and I to consider. The more that we would hear the gospel and oppose the gospel, resist the gospel, that hardness, I think, is very, very pronounced. Well, what's the bottom line? I, I may sound like an old-fashioned preacher when I say this, but that's okay. I'll, I'll own it. If we hear the gospel and, and we have not placed our faith and our trust in the finished work of Christ, don't think there's going to be a next time and a next time and a next time. By the grace of God, if God gives you understanding to this morning that you've never placed your faith and your trust in Him, don't delay it to next Sunday. Don't delay it to Wednesday night. Don't delay it to some other time. Oh, I'll think about it. Now, to me, one of the applications here is that the tendency, the Bible says, in my human heart and the rejection of the gospel is that my heart doesn't get softer. It actually gets harder. And so if there's a sensitivity to the gospel, and I hear this gospel today, and I'm going, you know, what a what an offer that Christ would die for me. This lamb of God that we spoke about would die in my place. This perfect lamb would die for me. Oh, don't delay, brother. Don't don't delay, friend. Because there not may not be another time. And that's not just saying, okay, oh, so I'm gonna die this way? You know, it's not just the fear of death. How do we know when we will continue to have a heart softened by the Holy Spirit to, to, to hear that unction from God that we can come and experience the grace and the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? Let us not take this for granted. It is of God. It's the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to our sin so that he can open our eyes to the beauty of the Savior. And we must not take that for granted. So what's the application of this passage for us today? Again, you're free to have different interpretations. If you if you believe that we can still commit that today, uh, we can discuss it. That's fine. I'm certainly not going to be mad about that because there's a whole bunch of theologians that would line up very conservatively and they would have difference of opinions, okay? So I'm I'm not trying to make this an argumental point. To me personally, I just want you to know where your pastor is. I don't know that we can do this precise sin as we found in Mark chapter 3, I do think that the application is, let us not grow a day longer if we don't know Christ and have put our faith and trust in Him, that we would do that even today. Because ultimately the sin that is unpardonable is that of unbelief, that we've never trusted Christ as the one who holds our faith and can make us right with the holy God. 
as far as there is sin that you've committed in your life, besides unbelief, a specific sin that you did when you were 15, that you did when you were 19, that you did when you were 23 or 42, and that's going to keep you out of heaven. I don't believe that we can find that in the Bible. I just don't see that we can find that one particular sin as being that unpardonable sin. But what we do see is this promise of God that when we come and confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us. Let's end on that. First John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That would be kind of the unpardonable sin there, that first part, if we would do a broad application. No, I don't need forgiveness of my sin. In a way, that's unbelief. That's a hardening to the gospel and the offer of Christ. So in that way, it, it pertains in that broad sense. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. <clears throat> if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from some of that righteousness. And yet, how Satan would love to whisper in your ear that it's not all unrighteousness. How he would love to whisper in your ear that I I know your story. I know your story. Hey, I know your story. And that's where we just simply turn back down. Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about a guy who loved me so much that he sent his only son who lived perfectly and died as a sacrificial lamb for me. That's my story. My other story has a lot of chapters in it, but that's the page I want you to see, Satan. Because that's the day that I forever, forever became a child of the living God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we are still susceptible to unbelief in our lives. Father, we are still very much susceptible to blaspheming, Father. Treating things that are holy in a way that is critical or treating them unholy. So Father, we realize that we live in a world, in this fallen world, and we're fallen people, Father, in the sense that we're susceptible to these sins. And yet, Father, we thank you today for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you for this for this Christ that you've given us, this Lamb of God, that, Father, today we can truly say now, Not only has forgiven us, but Father now has brought us into a unity of the body of Christ. So Father, today, uh, for someone who maybe has has never said, I've put my full faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. Father, I pray that they would not delay. Father, that you would open them up to come to me or one of the elders or uh, a friend or somebody that they know that knows you. That Father, they would be able to have that discussion. So that they would be forever be able to claim that I know that I know that I know that Christ has forgiven me and that he's my Lord and my Savior. And I put all of my hope, not just a lot of my hope, I put all of my hope of my righteousness before a holy God in the finished work of Christ. 
Father, we live in a day where uh, even our country, Father, we are experiencing great division and, and chaos. Father, I pray for our country this Tuesday. I, I pray, Father, that in all the division and all the hurt, all the things that people can fight about, that, Father, that the body of Christ would be a light in the darkness. Instead of words of division, Father, that we would have words of, of unity. That we would practice a, a patience and a love unlike we have ever experienced before, for the need is that great. Father, we thank you that you have called us to now stand together. And I pray that for our nation, I pray that for our, the Christians of the world. Father, I pray that for Cornerstone, that we truly would be united in you. So, Father, we love you today. We ask that you'd help us to be prayerful, and Father, to lift up our nation during this time, especially the next two days. And that, Father, your good and your perfect will would be done. We love you and thank you for Christ as we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.